Well, good morning. I'm sure you are not unaware of the theme that uh, runs throughout the course of those songs is we look to the Lord as our refuge, our strength. It's matched as well by even our scripture reading this morning, the reminder of the Lord's work in the wilderness in providing and caring for his people Israel. It's really it's a fitting theme to tie in with uh, our sermon this morning, our message this morning, our study. Because one of the great delusions, one of the great problems in this world is that we don't really believe it's all that bad. At least we don't act like it. We do not believe, we do not act like it is truly under the judgment of God. We don't believe, or at least act as if we believe that it's really a, as fallen, as sinful of a world as Scripture seems to claim it is, that it is truly enslaved to the futility of sin, a world that Paul says in Romans 8 cries out to be freed from its bondage to sin, a world, a place, an existence that's under God's judgment because of sin. Said human beings, even Christians, live as if nothing's really wrong. As if the judgment of God is not drawing near. As if the kingdom of God has not drawn near. As if the suffering of this present time is somehow not the judgment of God. There's some other excuse, some other reason. So if we claim to be Christians, what should we do about this? How should we live? How should we respond to the judgment of God in this world? How should we respond to the suffering of this age? Not only our own, but the suffering we see around us. Well, the answer, or at least an answer, to that question is found in all places in the sign of Jonah. And if you want to know what that means, well, I guess it's a good thing you're here this morning. So we're going to talk about that. But let's pray and we will begin our time of studying God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for the study of Jonah that we've had these past six weeks, for the lessons we've learned, the truths we've been confronted with, the hard introspection we've had to do as we've looked at our lives and realized how many Jonah-like propensities we have in our own life. So we turn our attention this morning to the sign of Jonah, your son's reference to this prodigal prophet, this unique prophet, this ungodly prophet. Pray that you would open our eyes to understanding its significance for our generation. As it was important for generations past, as it was important for the generation that you confronted May we understand its import for us today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to bring to a close our study of the book of Jonah. Um, as we conclude our study, I wanted to acknowledge something that you know, doesn't always come across when we're studying them. That is, the indebtedness I have, particularly to one theologian, his name is John Woodhouse, for really helping get me get my bearings early on in this book to the message of Jonah. I can honestly say that the impact of his study, his teaching on my life, 
really my, te my teaching, my understanding, the import of this passage would not be the same to me. And I say that because it's a wonderful reminder of that great tradition of 2 Timothy 2.2, of the entrusting of God's word to faithful men who in turn entrust it to others. I mention his name because if you can find anything written by him or preached by him, I exhort it to you. Now, as we turn our attention to Jonah, you may wonder, and rightly so, what else remains to be said about this book. We came last week to the end of it, and unless my Bible is different than yours, there is no other verse after verse 11 of chapter 4. Well, the answer to that question lies in the New Testament. And it will serve, really, to help us transition back into our study of the Gospel of Matthew that we've been in now for almost two years. And we'll pick it back up in earnest next week. But in preparation for our return from the deserted and sandy hills outside of Nineveh to the banks of the Sea of Galilee, I'm going to have us spend a few minutes, a few more minutes, once again in the story of Jonah. You see, as we move through the book of Jonah... We saw this dramatic story. We saw it unfold around us verse by verse, act by act, scene by scene. This dramatic story, this somewhat shocking story, this unexpected story. But now I want us to try and grasp the message of Jonah as a whole and its message as a whole. To really think back about what was the message of Jonah. How would I summarize the message of Jonah? And when you want to grasp the message of a story or of a book, it can often be helpful to read both the beginning as well as the end. And then to contemplate how is it that we got from there to here? What transpired? What took place to move us from where a book starts to where a book ends? You could actually do that with all of Scripture, could you not? From Genesis to Revelation. But we're not going to do that. We're just going to focus on the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, you remember, began with the word of the Lord. The word of God coming into human history through Jonah, the prophet, the son of Amittai. And we encountered that phenomenon that the Bible claims makes all the difference to us. That is, the word of God entering human history. This word of God that has entered human history has revealed many things in the past. Many things about God throughout human history. It has revealed Him as the Creator. It has revealed His character to us. His word has revealed humankind's relationship to God. And when we open the book of Jonah, we find the word of the Lord that came to Jonah. We read this in the first verse of the first chapter. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The word of the Lord here is a word of judgment. It's not a word of comfort. It's not a word of peace. It's a word of judgment. In verse 1, the God who has spoken makes it clear that he is judge of all the earth, not of Israel only, but of the Ninevites, of the Gentiles. Of all the earth. He is the one to whom this world, this human race, is related. And therefore, he is judge of all the earth. This was a foreboding word. You see, when the wickedness of man 
rose up for the first time to God, it was in Genesis 6. And what resulted a number of years later was a flood that wiped humankind almost completely off the face of the earth, save Noah and his family. Then the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah rose before the Lord, and the cities were burned and destroyed with fire from heaven. So you see, this word of the Lord that came to Jonah was a concerning word. It was a terrible word if you were a Ninevite. But something remarkable happens in the intervening pages so that when you reach the end of the book of Jonah, the concluding word from God is a word of divine mercy and divine grace. You can turn there to verse 11 of chapter 4. And we read, should I not, this is God speaking, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left hand as well as many animals. If you want to know the meaning of the reference to the right and the left hand, well, I'll have to point you back to last week's sermon. What I want you to notice here is the remarkable change that has taken place from the beginning to the end. God is now showing compassion on the great city of Nineveh. Nothing in those opening words in verse 1 of chapter 1 could have prepared you for this. In fact, if you had looked in history, the only logical conclusion is their wickedness has arisen. They're about to be wiped out. We open with God the judge, and yet here at the end we find the God of mercy. And you see, these are the two great realities that are presented in the book of Jonah. That he is a God of judgment, and he is a God of great mercy. And the book of Jonah invites us to learn these two realities, which are two of the most important realities to all of human existence, to your existence, to my existence. That God is judge and brings judgment upon the world because of sin, but that he is also a God who is rich in mercy and compassion, or we might say salvation. And these two great realities are reinforced throughout the book of Jonah as it takes us through this pattern of events. God's judgment followed by his mercy. In fact, it doesn't happen just once. It doesn't just happen twice in the book of Jonah. It happens three times in the book of Jonah. This pattern of events, these great realities reinforced upon us. It's a pattern of events which is central to God's nature, to God's ways with human beings. And it can be clearly seen In fact, this pattern, by the time we get through it three times, it ought to be deeply impressed upon us. And it consists of these three elements. And we saw them three different times. First, God's judgment is encountered by persons. In some way, it is recognized that they are under God's judgment. Secondly, persons who are brought under this judgment of God then pray and seek God's mercy. And thirdly, God delivers those who pray to him. Those are the three movements between these two realities. God's judgment coming, 
the recognition and the prayer for mercy and God's deliverance and mercy, or we might say salvation. In chapter 1, it was a great storm, a storm in which the forces of God's judgment were demonstrated, a great storm on the Mediterranean where that deep ship headed to Tarshish, loaded up with the captain, its crew, and its cargo, and Jonah along for the ride. Surrounded by this enormous, supernatural, divinely appointed storm, buffeting the ship, attacking it, threatening to break it apart. It was in the midst of this supernatural storm that we saw the pagan sailors on the ship do an about-face and pray to the living God once they learned who he was from the lips of Jonah. Jonah became an inadvertent missionary to the Gentiles there. And when they found out that it was this living God who was buffeting the ship, that was throwing the winds, hurling the winds against it, they prayed for mercy, for deliverance. You're familiar with the story. After they prayed and Jonah was overboard, we saw the storm still. And the sailors worshiping God for delivering them from divine judgment. And then we saw in chapter 2, we move right into a second act of God's divine judgment, in which the waves engulf Jonah as he's hurled overboard, and the Lord appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up in judgment. Then, from this place of judgment, the belly of the great fish, Jonah does what? Prays for mercy. As his life is fainting away with those last gulps of oxygen, prays for mercy. And he was delivered, as we saw at the end of chapter 2, onto dry land. Noticeably absent, I'll note in parentheses, is that worship and sacrifice of the sailors in the life of Jonah. The third time we are taken through this pattern of judgment and mercy is in chapter 3. There the word of God's judgment is proclaimed to the city of Nineveh. Jonah goes into the city still somewhat reluctantly, still half-heartedly. He announces the word of judgment, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. The people of Nineveh are confronted with God's impending judgment. The word of God's judgment is proclaimed, and it supernaturally reaches the ears of the king. Then, understanding, recognizing God's divine judgment, this divine judgment that is hovering over them, imminent, from the greatest to the least, from the king and his nobles to the pauper in the streets, they turn from their evil ways and they cry to the Lord for mercy. And you know the rest of the story. The end of chapter 3, God showed mercy. He did not destroy the city, but delivered it from judgment. Judgment. Prayer to God for mercy. Deliverance or salvation. It's a pattern of events that's repeated throughout the book of Jonah. It's a pattern of events that you'll find repeated throughout your Bibles. It's a pattern of events, though the circumstances may look different, that any true believer, any true Christian has experienced. You have been brought in some way or another to the realization, the reality of God's impending judgment over sin. 
And once a person has become aware of this reality of divine judgment, if they were to cry out to God for mercy, the great God of mercy shows mercy. There is none He turns away. We discover in our Bibles that the God who has revealed Himself in the living Word, Jesus Christ is a God who is rich in mercy and is always merciful to those who call out to Him for salvation and deliverance. And yet the intriguing, perhaps the frustrating part about Jonah in the book of Jonah is chapter 4. You see, that pattern gets all messed up in chapter 4. That judgment, the prayer for mercy, deliverance, because chapter 4 begins with deliverance, a reminder of the deliverance of the city of Nineveh. And then we find someone praying. It's Jonah praying, but this time it's a prayer of complaint. It's a prayer of complaint and a prayer for judgment, not a prayer from judgment. Not a prayer for mercy, but for judgment on Nineveh. And as the chapter unfolds and as the book comes to a close, we see that despite Jonah's best efforts and appeals, the mercy of God prevails. Nineveh is spared. And that is where the book closes. And it leaves us with a rather dim view of Jonah. We learn through our study of Jonah that this book is far from trivial. We're reminded of that this morning. That the message that is central to the book of Jonah is the message that is central to the gospel, to the promise of salvation. To think of the book of Jonah as simply that whale of a tale about a man who is lucky to escape the belly of a big fish is not to even begin to understand this book, is it? It is a deeply theological book. That is to say, it's a book that reveals the character of God to us. It's a book that shows us what God is like. It is a book that teaches us how God interacts with His creation and with the people whom He has created. It's a book that shows us how he also deals with us as people. It's a book that shows us clearly that God is judge of all the earth, but a judge who has mercy on all who cry out to him for mercy. That's the story of Jonah. And as we were reminded, that's the story of us. In so many ways, we're reminded of our Jonah-like propensities. Well, a few weeks ago, and this will serve as our transition into the New Testament, a few weeks ago, while looking at chapter 2 of Jonah, we made the observation that Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet with whom Jesus Christ makes a direct comparison with himself. There are many other Old Testament figures with whom Jesus is compared, these types who prefigure and hold forth the promise of the Messiah, of the Christ who is to come in the New Testament. Persons like Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Elijah, and others. You see other biblical writers appropriately make these allusions and these references. However, from the lips of Jesus himself, the only Old Testament figure to whom Jesus directly <clears throat> compares himself is Jonah. It's an odd choice. This prodigal prophet, this little man who 
sought to see judgment, not salvation, delivered to people. If you haven't already turned there, you can turn to the book of Matthew. And even though we're a little bit beyond this, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 12. As we move back into the New Testament, in verse 41 of chapter 12, Jesus makes a rather fascinating statement. He says in verse 41 of chapter 12, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now you might stop me right there and say, well, with Jonah, chapter 4, still fresh in our minds, you might be tempted to say that's really not all that impressive, is it? Someone would not have to be very great at all to be greater than Jonah. Again, last week we cautioned ourselves against such a line of thinking, but I understand it. But I also suspect, as I believe you do, that there's something more profound going on here. Because if we notice carefully, Jesus does not make the comparison most persons think he makes. That is, Jesus does not say someone greater than Jonah is here, but rather something greater than Jonah is here. This comparison that Matthew is making in Matthew and Jesus is making in Matthew 12, 41, is not so much drawn between Jonah himself and Jesus himself, but rather to the circumstances that surround these two figures of Jesus and Jonah. What circumstances are those, you might ask? Well, in Matthew 12, 41, the rest of the verse, Jesus highlights those circumstances by pointing us back to that same pattern of events that we observe three times in the book of Jonah. Judgment, prayer for mercy, deliverance. Notice how he does this in verse 41. We read, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment. There you have your judgment. Will condemn it. Because they repented. That is, they prayed, they called out for mercy. At the preaching of Jonah. And behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. Just as the Ninevites on that day so long ago faced divine judgment, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So this generation, says Jesus, this body of persons listening to my teaching here today, so this generation, Jesus says, faces divine judgment. You see that parallel, that Correspondence he draws here. You are all likewise facing divine judgment. Jesus' listeners, through the teaching of Jesus, are brought face to face with the reality of divine judgment. And this is not the first time he's done this in his ministry. In fact, from the very first re record of his ministry, all the way back to Matthew 4, Verse 17, where he began to preach, saying, Repent, that is, cry out to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. That is, the judgment of God is drawing near. Now with it comes a lot of other things. There is much encapsulated in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. But at a bare minimum, the judgment of God is drawing near. That's been his message continually and consistently throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
The Ninevites, Jesus reminds his hearers, repented at the preaching of divine judgment. They prayed for mercy. And they received mercy. But how will it be for this evil and adulterous generation, says Jesus, who will not repent, who will not turn to God, who will not call out for mercy, even though something greater than Jonah is here? So it's by contrast that the pattern of events in Jonah's day highlight the events of Jesus' day and Jesus' hearers. And we might, of course, see this same parallel drawn with our own generation and our own situation, might we not? Because we live in a nation, we live in a society, we live in a world where the reality of divine judgment is brought before people in a number of ways, not the least of which is the preaching of the gospel. Now, they may try to ignore it, they may try to pretend it doesn't exist. Even those who call themselves Christians don't like to think of this divine judgment. In our world, in our nation, even in our communities, there is still a refusal to turn to God, to respond to the message of divine judgment, a refusal to call out for mercy, just as there was a refusal among Jesus' hearers. In our world, in our nation, in our communities around us, wherever the message is preached, wherever the reality of divine judgment is expressed, is taught, is explained. And the men of Nineveh will arise in the day of judgment, says Jesus. Condemn this generation, says Jesus, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but you will not repent. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is far fuller and clearer than was the preaching of Jonah, something greater than Jonah, is here as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed as the life and the circumstances of Jesus are revealed, but still they will not repent. And look again at verse 40 in this passage in Matthew 12. Study's a bit different this morning, so we're also going to work backwards in a text. But verse 40, we see not only are the circumstances of Jesus' hearers illuminated and highlighted by the book of Jonah, but the pattern is the same, or at least it's parallel. And so Jonah's experience also explains, or we might say the sign of, the experience of Jesus. And here in verse 40, we read a more direct comparison between Jonah and Jesus, where verse 40 reads, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, or we might say big fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These words in verse 40 are meant to explain a rather puzzling statement back in verse 39, continuing to work backwards. Jesus had been asked by the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees specifically, for a sign. Give us a sign, they said. They wanted some other sign. He's done a lot of signs. He's raised the dead. He's opened the eyes of the blind. He's given voice to the mute. He's even raised the dead. But they want another sign. Jesus' answer in verse 39 was, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. That is, the sign which is Jonah. 
for any of you grammarians out there, this is called the genitive of apposition. That is, we say the city of Canton, meaning the city which is Canton. The sign which is Jonah. On the one hand, Jesus is saying they will receive a sign, but on the other hand, he's really offering them no sign at all, or at least no new sign. In fact, if you look at Mark's parallel account in the gospel, in Mark 8.11, you'll see quite clearly that Jesus is not offering them a sign at all. He refuses to answer their request. He will not give them what they want. Instead, he points to what they already have, Jonah. No new sign will be given them. The prophet Jonah that you've already got, he will be your sign. Now, there's also something I find particularly interesting in verse 40. However, it's in what Jesus does not say. Now, I'll stop right there because you rightly recognize, in fact, some of you are cautioning me right now, that there is a danger that we need to be aware of, and we should always take great care to make sure we understand what a text says before we make comment or worry about something it does not say. But notice what Jesus could have said but does not say, that I think is often inferred into the text. He could have said, as Jonah was delivered after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be raised and resurrected after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But he didn't. The focus, the main point of comparison between the experience of Jonah and the experience of Jesus is not, as most people think, between Jonah's experience of being delivered from the fish and Jesus' experience of being raised from the dead. That isn't the main point. It's, of course, implied. The deliverance of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus, are clearly implied by the limitation of the period of time, three days and three nights. But the focus, that's on the peripheral. The focus, the attention, where we need to be looking is on what preceded that deliverance from the fish. And by extension, what preceded Jesus' resurrection. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart or the belly of the earth. So let's ask, what preceded Jonah's deliverance? Well, if you remember back to our study of chapter 2, it was judgment from the waves of the sea to the experience of drowning, to being swallowed by a fish, all of that was judgment. So often, all we think about is him being spat out onto dry land and assume that, oh, well, all of it was just saving him. No, it was judgment. It was judgment leading to him recognize it so that he would cry out for mercy, so that he would confess salvation belongs to the Lord. But it was judgment. Jonah overwhelmed by the forces of God's judgment in chapter 2 of Jonah. Notice what happens in his experience of God's judgment. He describes it as the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead in verse 2. He says he is cast out of God's presence in verse 5. He's been cast down into the pit in verse 6. So Jesus says, as it was with Jonah during those three days, so it will be with the Son of Man. Only something greater than Jonah is here. And so let's ask, what preceded the resurrection? It was likewise an experience of God's judgment, was it not, on the cross? 
when the full wrath of God came to bear upon Christ who took the full weight of mankind's sin upon himself? Look at Jesus on the cross and his words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cast out from God's presence, as was Jonah. Jonah, as he is suffering God's judgment, as oxygen is failing, as death's doorstep approaches, he remembered the Lord and cried out to the Lord. Well, under that judgment, now listen to the words of Jesus when he was on the cross. When he was breathing his last, what did he say? Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Or as the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 5.7, In the days of his flesh, he had offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his righteousness, his godliness, his piety. He was heard, as was Jonah, resulting in the resurrection mirrored in the deliverance of Jonah. But again, first came the judgment. You ask for a sign, says Jesus, something to indicate the significance of the coming of Christ, the coming of the Messiah that I am sent from heaven. Then you have your sign in the prophet Jonah. In one who experienced the overwhelming judgment of God and cried out for mercy, which you won't even do, you can't even mimic the prodigal prophet. You scribes and Pharisees, those of you who think you are so religious, you can't even imitate the worst of the prophets. But to make things even worse, something greater than Jonah is here. In one who experienced the overwhelming judgment of God, one who experienced judgment and suffering to which Jonah's suffering and judgment is but a light affliction. It's like a feather slapping him. I mean, what is greater? What is it that is greater than Jonah that is here? It's that in the judgment of Christ, he bore the sins not of himself, but of the whole world. That in the judgment of Christ, salvation was made available not to one person, but to all persons. That in the judgment of Christ, death was defeated because he entrusted himself to the one who is able to save. That in the judgment of Christ, he rose from the dead and, as Paul says, led captive a host of captives. That's why one greater than Jonah is here. Because the salvation, the deliverance, the mercy is unlike anything the world has ever experienced. Likewise, the judgment is greater than anything this world has ever seen. As Jesus took upon himself the weight of the sin of all mankind and with it the wrath of God toward the sin of all mankind. Now these words of Jesus here, they invite us this morning to live our lives in light of the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
On the one hand, that will mean separating ourselves from this evil and adulterous generation. It does not mean go live in a convent or monastery, but to live set apart, unique, weird even, by the world's standard. It will mean to identify ourselves with the men of Nineveh who repented in the face of God's coming judgment. So I guess really the first question I want to leave you with as we conclude our series in Jonah is the question of whether you are a person with a Ninevite experience. If having looked at the experience of Nineveh, though we live in a different culture, a different time, a different place, can you recognize something similar to what took place in Nineveh as something that has taken place in your life? Have you had a Ninevite-like experience? Do you recognize the reality of divine judgment? Have you recognized the reality of divine judgment? Have you cried out for mercy? Are you crying out for mercy? Are you repenting? Are you continually turning from evil? Are you continually crying out to the Lord for mercy? Have you turned to the God who has announced He is your judge, but has also promised to be your Savior? having made himself known so clearly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, you do not know when your 40 days will end and you will be overthrown. So you must not delay. Turn to Jesus today. Cry out to him for mercy. You see, if you've heard any of the messages on the book of Jonah, you are now without excuse. The reality of divine judgment has been shown to you. The only option is, will you respond? Have you responded? Have you had that Ninevite experience when faced with the overwhelming judgment of God? One who has had this experience does not just have it once, but it characterizes their life as they live in this newfound reality of both the judgment of God as well as the mercy of God. Reminded over and over again, day by day, of the mercy of God. Of the fact that His mercies are new every morning. There's another level to this living in the light of the sign of the prophet Jonah. And it relates more specifically to the judgment of God. What is the judgment of God exactly in this world? The Bible, of course, speaks of the reality of a future eternal divine judgment with eternal ramifications where every person will stand before him and judged with all those who have not repented cast forever for eternity into the lake of fire. So there is this eternal judgment But that is not all that is encapsulated in the judgment of God. In fact, the judgment of God is not just a future reality. It is that, but it's also more than that. It's a present reality. You see, as we started with this morning, this world we are reminded of in which the forces, we live in a world in which the forces of God's judgment surround our lives all the time. We've just gotten used to it. And we forget to stop and think that this is God's judgment. The entropy we experience, the sickness we experience, the suffering we experience, the death we experience, where did it come from? 
The world didn't start out this way. It's the judgment for sin. We live in a world where suffering is the order of the day. If you think you can get through life without suffering, it's a vain hope. You will suffer physical suffering, emotional suffering, psychological suffering. Loved ones will die around you. Sickness and disease will, disease will wreak havoc on you and those around you. And you will suffer in various ways and you will witness suffering. We are living in a world that the Bible describes as being subjected to futility. It is a world that even now exists under God's judgment, <clears throat> waiting to be set free from its corruption to sin. <clears throat> the pain and the suffering of the world in which we live is an expression of the reality of God's judgment. You see, apart from the preaching of the gospel, the very world in which we live bears witness to the fact that God is judge and judgment exists and is coming As sinful human beings, we are under God's judgment. And suffering in this world is most often indiscriminate, at least from our perspective, right? The psalmists in the Old Testament, they frequently lament the fact that the righteous and the godly seem to suffer equally, and the righteous seem to suffer perhaps even more than the unrighteous. Being godly does not guarantee that you will be spared suffering. In fact, quite the opposite. And being wicked and godly doesn't mean that you will suffer more in this world. Quite the opposite. But the very fact that there is suffering and the degree of suffering in this world should be a clear indication of God's judgment. You see, so many persons want to make out that if there's a good and loving God, then we could not have this pain and suffering. No, it's because we have a good and loving God and a just God who judges all unrighteousness and all sin that we have this suffering. What is good and loving about it is that he's provided a way of escape through the living word that has come into human history through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because there is a God, it's because he is a just God and a righteous God that he relates to this world as judge because of its sin. And it's in light of this judgment that the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. You see, it would not be good news if there was not this judgment. It's why the gospel must be proclaimed. It's why we cannot be like Jonah who wanted to keep God's salvation to himself. Certainly something greater than Jonah is here. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, there is final deliverance from judgment. There is hope and promise that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed, but only for those who cry out for mercy. That hope and that promise only exist if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And if he is one who can save me ultimately, and he can, if he can ultimately save me from the judgment of God, the next question we should be asking is this, how then do I live in this world where I am surrounded by God's judgment? How should I live 
a life in which there is such pain and suffering. Some of you know this suffering and this judgment of God against sin to a greater degree than others. So how are you to live? The answer is that we must, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul, become like Christ in his death. But what does that mean? Christ, who on the cross bore the full weight of God's wrath and judgment, but while bearing the judgment of God, did not respond in bitterness, did not cry out against God, did not accuse God of being unfair or acting unjustly, did not cease trusting himself to God, but rather he prayed to God in full trust and confidence while being under the full weight of God's judgment. And to think how many of us whimper, moan, grumble, and complain when the rain messes up our plans. Because I live in this world and feel the forces of God's judgment on this world of sin. Because I'm part of the human race and experience the sufferings of this fallen world, the sufferings of this present time, I need to imitate Christ in his death. I too must trust God in suffering. I too must offer my prayer to God. I must, as Paul puts it, share his sufferings. I need to imitate that faithfulness in the midst of judgment. It's something that should be reflected in our lives, in the world in which we live. For as the Apostle Paul again puts it in Romans chapter 6, if we are united in a death like his, then we will certainly be united in a resurrection like his. There's an interesting passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 I want you to turn to. It'll begin in verse 12, and it's an appropriate place to close out this study. This reminder of the judgment and the mercy of God. This exhortation of how to live in a world of suffering as those who do claim to trust God, who have cried out to the Lord for mercy. In 1 Peter, Peter is addressing a group of Christians who are suffering very deeply and painfully. And Peter speaks of that suffering in light of God's judgment, in light of the fact that this world is under his judgment. And Peter calls on them, again, without reference to Jonah or the sign of Jonah, but in much the same way, if not the exact same way, to continue to live faithfully to God, even though they are living in the midst of the forces of God's judgment. Listen to these words, beginning at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, as a little Christ, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Sounds like Christ's prayer on the cross, as the writer of Hebrew describes it. And it is very much the cry of Jonah from the belly of the whale. That's how we are to live in light of the sign of Jonah. In light of the reality of God's judgment in this world. And the suffering that comes with it. That's how we are to live as those who have received the mercy of God in this world. Trusting the living God who created the seas and the dry land and do what is right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this reminder, this important sign of Jonah. There's so much encapsulated within it. There's so much that is demanded of our lives. Father, we've only touched the tip of the iceberg. Lord, I pray that you would help, help us who have called out to you for mercy, who have understood the reality of divine judgment and felt that hopelessness, that desperation, that spiritual poverty, who have cried out to you. Help us to now live lives that mirror the death of Christ on the cross, who while suffering offered no rebuke, against either those who tormented him or against you, the Father. He never questioned you, did not call you unjust, did not grumble and complain, but suffered silently, simply trusting himself, entrusting himself to the one who is able to save from the dead. By the way, thank you for this great hope and promise that we have in Christ. Thank you for the living word that has come into human history, that has changed our lives. Help us to be bold in proclaiming this gospel to a world that so desperately needs to understand the seriousness and the significance of the judgment they are living under. Help us to be motivated to preach the gospel, to share the hope of the gospel, to help lead others to that cry of mercy with a view of the cross. In your name, amen.